You're listening to the sermon audio for English Ministries at Tri-City Chinese Christian Church. We meet on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. at the Kyle Center in Port Moody, British Columbia. Uh, we are continuing our series in the story of God, and uh, I had said last week that we were going to look at Judges, um, but I decided that actually we will look at Sinai this morning. Um, because as I read through the book of Judges, I realized, oh, this is a cycle of history. It's like the same story over and over again, so I can do it in like two sentences. So that's what we'll do next week at the beginning of the message as we go then into the monarchy. Um, so we're going to look at Sinai, especially um, last week, uh, Joe looked at them coming out of Egypt. Um, so right in between this time of escaping Egypt um, and this time in the wilderness, um, which is great because as I've been doing videos for this as well, I did Exodus and I could only get up to the point where they left from uh, Egypt because it's just too long. There's, Exodus is a big book. Uh, and so I only think was able to get up to that point anyways. Uh, there's no way he would have been able to cover it either. Anyways, but we're gonna talk about Sinai because Sinai is a super important part of uh, the Old Testament. If you were to look at the first five books of the Bible, which is the, called the Pentateuch, uh, which is just fancy for five books, basically. Um, but it is the form, formative book for uh, Israel, for Judaism. And out of those five books, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all have to do, really, with their time in Sinai and the receiving of the law. And Genesis is really a building up to that point um, of the climax of the story, which is Sinai, so we can't leave it out. So that's why we're jumping into Sinai today, long-winded way uh, of going about why we're talking about that. So the Israelites have spent 430 years in Egypt. Joseph, uh, if we remember a couple weeks ago, uh, got sold into slavery in Egypt, rose to power, helped save even Egypt from a famine, and his family ended up moving down because of this famine, and now they were dwelling in Egypt. And they ended up being there for 430 years, most of it under oppression as slaves in Egypt. But now God has punished Pharaoh for his mistreatment of the people uh, with these 10 plagues, and he brings them out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses by parting the Red Sea, which allows the Israelites to escape the incoming army of Egypt. And then the sea comes crashing down upon the Egyptian army, wiping them out. And now they stand on the other side of the Red Sea, outside of the borders of Egypt, and in safety. But now what? They begin to wander into the desert, the wilderness of Sinai, uh, and they spend three days at the beginning of their journey without finding any water. But on the third day, they finally come to this giant pool of water, but it's too bitter for them to drink. And so they begin to grumble and complain to Moses against Moses about this lack of water. So Moses prays to Yahweh, who shows them a piece of wood that Moses throws into the water and the bitterness is removed and the people can drink. And now I realize I say Yahweh, but we didn't talk about this name reveal uh, of God as Yahweh last week. And it's kind of an important thing. So we're gonna actually take a jump back for a second here. Uh, Israel, uh, when Moses uh, had killed an Egyptian and got found out, and so he had to flee away from Egypt. And while he was there, he was tending his father-in-law's flocks uh, where he, well, first he found a wife, and then his father-in-law's fox. He was tending, and one day he's out there, and he comes across a burning bush. And 
I mean, I would do the same if I saw something on fire in the middle of the wilderness, I'm gonna go check it out because I don't know, fire is kind of nice to, and cool to look at. And so I'm gonna go check it out and he does and he's amazed that this bush isn't burning up. Uh, it's on fire, but it's not deteriorating in the fire as fire usually does to things. And when he does, comes closer, he hears a voice. And in this conversation with God, whose voice this belongs to, God reveals his name to Moses, and his name is revealed as I am who I am, uh, or the short version, I am, which is Yahweh. And actually an amazing thing about this reveal of this name is this reveal of the character of Yahweh as well. Uh, it has many kind of translations that could be around. I am who I am is a common one that uh, is used. Uh, some translations will also put in, I will be who I will be. And in the context of what Moses is talking about, he's saying, Moses, I'm going to send you to confront Pharaoh. And Moses is asking all these questions like, who am I to go and confront Pharaoh? What if the people don't believe me? What if, uh, or I don't speak very well? He's got all these questions basically saying, God, don't send me, I'm not qualified. And in answer to these questions, one of them is Yahweh, I will be who I will be, and I am sending you. In this way, Yahweh is saying, I will be who you need me to be. And you see that throughout all the other things he tells them. Here's some signs, throw down your staff, it'll turn into a serpent. All these signs I'm gonna give you, I will be who you need me to be. God, I don't speak very well. Well, who created the human tongue? Who gives them speech? Who makes them be able to hear, who be able to see? I will put my words in, my, in your mouth. I will be who you need me to be. And eventually uh, Moses just goes, please, said someone else. And Yahweh says, no, I'm sending you, but your brother Aaron's coming. He's going to speak for you. Again, I will be who, I, who you need me to be. It's this great faithfulness of God to the person that he has chosen to lead his people. He is not going to abandon Moses, but will be whatever Moses needs him to be. All right, that's another aside that we spent off here, trying to do some uh, catch-up on here. So Yahweh, uh, they come to this bitter water. They can't drink it. Moses prays to Yahweh, who shows them a piece of wood uh, that Moses throws in the water, and the water becomes, uh, the bitterness is removed, and the people can drink and then they move on from that area, and shortly after that area, they find an air, uh, a place that has 12 springs of water, uh, and so they camp there for a while. But as they leave the springs, and they start heading towards this mountain that Yahweh had told Moses to go to, the people start to grumble again. They say, if only Yahweh had destroyed us in Egypt, we were surrounded by meat, and we ate all the food that we wanted, but we have been brought into this desert to starve to death. They're very dramatic people, <laughs> the Israelites. Uh, so Yahweh brings manna to them, a wafer-like substance that when they wake up in the morning, they see it on the ground, uh, like as if dew when you wake up in the morning. It's got all those dew droplets, except it's this man manna, which is this wafer that tastes like honey. And Yahweh says that they can gather enough for to eat that day. Um, but not to gather any more because it won't last. It will expire the next day. But the next day that you wake up, there will be more manna there. On Fridays, you are to gather two days because Saturday is the Sabbath for them. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So there will be enough on Fridays for two days uh, for you to take. And that stuff will last over the next day. And it's this exercise of trust that they got to trust not to, that, uh, that, that Yahweh will bring them more food the next day. Uh, and some of them, of course, on the first day gather as much as they can, and they wake up the next morning, it's all rotted uh, in their 
uh, in their jars or whatever they keep it in. And so it's this exercise of trust. So they're getting this food. Um, but then as they start moving along again, they start grumbling again about the lack of water once more. They're in a desert. And so Yahweh tells Moses to strike a rock with his staff. He does so and water comes pouring out for the people to drink. And this is how they travel through the desert. Manna arriving for food in the morning and once in a while Moses will hit a rock and some water will come out when they need water. Eventually they draw near to the place where Moses was told to go. And um, Moses, uh, it was a place near where Moses had lived when he had fled Egypt in the first place. And so his father-in-law, Jethro, comes out to give him a visit. And he sees that Moses is tied up all day handling the disputes of the people. Anytime there was a fight between two people, they would get it resolved by going to Moses and laying out the case before them. And Moses would give judgment. And as we've seen, the Israelite people are very complaining, <laughs> and they're complaining about lots of things. So obviously, they start getting on each other's nerves. I mean, you're wandering through a hot desert as well, walking all the time. I'm sure it'll make you enough to be irritable with other people too. And uh, so Moses has spent all day, uh, when they're not moving, dealing with these disputes. And so Jethro tells him it's not wise for him to carry this burden alone. And so to find qualified judges and to judge the disputes among the people and split them into like the groups. This group goes to this person for their disputes. This group goes to this person for their disputes. And if there's anyone that those judges can't solve, then those ones get passed up to Moses to deal with. Moses sees this as a good idea and he employs it. Jethro then blesses Moses and goes back home. And then finally... The people arrive at the mountain at which they were to hear from Yahweh and where they were to worship Yahweh. And so Yahweh tells Moses to prepare the people for he's going to descend on the mountain in a cloud. They're to consecrate and purify themselves to be in the presence of the Lord. And so this is what the people do. They consecrate and they purify themselves in anticipation for this to come. And then three days later, thunder booms around the mountain. It shakes the ground upon which they stand, and lightning flashes in the sky. A thick cloud descends upon Mount Sinai, and the people tremble in fear. And Moses leads the people out of the camp that they've set up to the bottom of the mountain. And they can't see the top of it because smoke is billowing thickly as Yahweh descends in fire on top of the mountain. And the people are told not to go up the mountain, but instead Moses is going to go up and he's going to speak with Yahweh. And during this time um, with Yahweh, he's given the law to deliver to the people. And it's here at Sinai that Israel is finally transformed just from a large group of people into a nation. And the core of the law is the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, if you want the fancy academic theological term that they use, uh, the Decalogue. And with uh, these other laws that fill the rest of Exodus and Leviticus, which is a very fine read, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy and Numbers, all these laws that come out uh, is out of their lived experience as they navigate their new reality. They come up, things start coming up, and so then Whoever uh, Moses, who's writing Leviticus and Numbers or tradition, gives it to Moses to write, writes down these laws in response to those things that come up. But the core of it is these Ten Commandments. And in the introduction to this, these Ten Commandments, it's introduced by the relationship that Israel has with Yahweh. 
And it's the basis for why they are to live according to this law. It says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And it's because they've been rescued by Yahweh that they are to follow this law. And so in the Ten Commandments, we have um, the first four, which deal with their relationship with Yahweh. They are to have no other gods before Yahweh. They are not to worship idols. They are not to misuse Yahweh's name. And they are to observe the Sabbath, which is a day spent um, in rest, in delight of Yahweh. So the first four commandments deal with their relationship with Yahweh. And then the other six commandments deal with their relationship with one another. Honor your parents. Do not murder each other. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal from one another. Do not lie about one another. Do not desire the possessions of one another. These are all ways to have good relationship with other people. You can't have a good relationship with someone if you murder them, if you steal from them, if you do all these things. So this is the core of the law that's being given to them. And if you do venture to read through Leviticus, you see uh, a whole bunch of these laws get introduced by the same way that the Decalogue is introduced. I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you out of slavery, out of Egypt. And that is the basis for a lot of these laws come out from. So you have a bunch of laws dealing with slaves in Leviticus. And these laws are much kinder and gentler to slaves than the surrounding cultures. And the idea behind this is that they were slaves in Egypt, so since they were slaves, they shouldn't be treating whatever slaves they end up having poorly. They're to treat them well, and there's uh, opportunities for them to be released and freed. And slavery in this sense is different than what we know as modern-day slavery or slavery in um, of African Americans in the States, in that slavery was one way in which you could pay off debts. And so you would uh, put yourself as a servant or a slave to someone, and you would work for them to pay off your debts. And you were, uh, many of them were part of the family as well, and they're putting a lot of you know, things in place where, to protect the slaves more than you're protected in other ways. And it all comes from this basis that Yahweh rescued them from slavery, looking at their past experiences and using that to treat others well, basically. Um, and so Moses has received all this law, and he now comes down the mountain, and he tells the people these Ten Commandments that have been given to him, and the people all respond together, everything which... Uh, everything Yahweh has said, we will do. And then they offer sacrifices to Yahweh, and this brings them into this new covenant with Yahweh. They would be Yahweh's people, and Yahweh would be their God. And being Yahweh's people meant following these, this law. And then Yahweh's promise is that, well, he has delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and now he will be with them and be their God. He will fight on behalf of them and will care for them. Moses then, after sharing this, goes back up into the cloud at the top of the mountain, and Yahweh writes these commandments upon stone tablets. And now while Moses is up on the mountain again, he receives very detailed instructions on making a tabernacle, which is a tent of worship. Uh, not particularly this tent, but this is a 
stock photo I could find of the, the biggest tent I could find a stock photo of, but it was much bigger than this. But uh, this tabernacle, this tent uh, of worship uh, where the presence of Yahweh will dwell. Yahweh desires to dwell amongst his people. And so this is a way that it can be accomplished. Israel will be able to look at the tabernacle in the middle of their camp and know that Yahweh, the God who brought judgment upon Egypt, the God who split the Red Sea in two for them to cross over, the God who appeared just days ago on Mount Sinai in this fire and lightning and thunder, dwells in their midst in this tabernacle and is on their side. And this gold and silver that the Israelites were given by the Egyptians before they left is now used to make a lot of these elements of worship that is needed in the tabernacle. And people donate so much of this gold and silver that Moses has to tell them to stop giving them because they already had enough. But people just kept wanting to give more to this tabernacle. As Moses is receiving some of these instructions for the space of worship, and the dwelling of uh, Yahweh, there was something else going in the camp down below on the mountain. Moses had been up on the mountain for a long period of time, and the people didn't know what happened to him. Uh, he's in this big, spo- smoking fire top of a mountain. Who knows what could have happened to Moses up there? So the people go to Aaron, and they ask him to make them gods to lead them to the place where they're going. And Aaron tells them to bring all their gold earrings and their jewelry that their wives and their children are wearing to him. And Aaron takes them all this gold and he fashions it into the shape of a calf. When he finished it, he brings it out and they build an altar on which they put this calf. And Aaron says, this is your God, Israel, that brought you up out of Egypt. And so the idea here is that he's trying to make a physical representation of Yahweh uh, for them to follow. And the interesting thing here is already um, Moses is receiving instructions for this tabernacle, which helps represent God's presence, but not trying to depict God. Because do not worship idols, even if you're trying to make an image that looks like God to bow down before, is still an idol because God is the invisible God, and so you can't render him down into an image. And they choose a calf as a typical uh, image in this the surrounding cultures for a god because it just represents strength uh, in a way and fertility, fertility I believe, as well. Uh, and so he's done this, and so now they're worshiping an idol. Even though they're doing it in the name of Yahweh, it's still an idol. And so they start bowing down, and Aaron pronounces that they're going to have a festival to Yahweh tomorrow around this calf. Well, Yahweh knows what's happening down there, and he says to Moses, go down to your people. They have been come corrupt and have made themselves a god that they are bowing down and sacrificing to, claiming that it brought them up out of Egypt. These are a stiff-necked people. Leave me now so that my anger can burn and destroy them, and out of you I will make a great nation. But Moses intercedes with Yahweh. He tells them that if he were to wipe out Israel, then Egypt and the nations in Canaan, the land that they're heading towards, the promised land, will believe that Yahweh brought them out into the wilderness to destroy them. And he tells them to remember his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And Yahweh relents and does not bring disaster upon them. So Moses heads down with these tablets, the classic Moses tablet scene, comes down with these tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, and he sees the people worshiping and dancing around this golden calf. 
And Moses' anger burns. And he throws down the tablets and he smashes them. And he takes the calf and he burns it. And then he grinds it into a powder and he scatters it over their drinking water and makes them drink it. And lots of people get sick from this. And then he turns to Aaron and he says, what do these people do to you that cause you to lead them into such a great sin? And Aaron comes up with the lamest excuse ever. He says, don't be angry with me. They asked me to make gods for them. I gathered their gold. I threw it in the fire. Out came this calf. Just magically appeared, even though he fashioned it. And so Moses sees that the people are running around wild. Aaron has no more control anymore. And so he shouts at the entrance of the camp, whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. And the tribe of Levi come and gather around him. And they go into the camp and they start killing those who are worshiping the calf. And 3,000 Israelites die. Moses then goes to a tent, not the tabernacle, because that hasn't been built yet, but a different tent that he had set up for worship of Yahweh. Just a regular tent, maybe something that looked like that other tent. Um, and he intercedes again for Israel before there. The Israelites strip themselves of all the remaining jewelry that they haven't made into this calf or given for the tabernacle, and they mourn for their actions. And Yahweh re-enters into this covenant with the people that they had literally just broken, that they received like a week before. And so now the tabernacle is built according to the previous specifics that Yahweh had told Moses. Once it's complete and consecrated, the glory of Yahweh comes and he fills the tabernacle with such power that not even Moses can enter the tent. And Yahweh is now dwelling amongst his people in the wilderness, guiding them to the promised land. So this is the climax of that Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. The law is given by God to Moses and the Israelites enter into covenant with God. And the rest of the Pentateuch deals with the outworking of this, as I had said before. Um, they have this, this Decalogue, these ten, lo uh, ten laws. Um, and now as they're trying to live in that reality of that, different situations pop up and they start making a little bit more specific laws for things that come up um, throughout. And that's what's filled through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy takes place as they're on the edge about to enter into the promised land and Moses is basically reading everything again for the people uh, and reaffirming their covenant before they enter into the promised land. So a lot of it deals with the law. Genesis and Exodus, uh, the narrative of Exodus at the beginning there in Egypt and coming out of it, come along to show the framework within which these laws are built. They're based upon the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, as shown in Genesis, and they're based upon Yahweh rescuing Israel from slavery as well. And so lots of the laws in Exodus and Leviticus start, do such and such a thing, or don't do such and such a thing, because you were slaves in Egypt and I rescued you. That's the basis of the relationship upon which Yahweh says, do these things or don't do these things. And it is because of Israel's experience as slaves and experiencing Yahweh's saving acts that they're called to live out this law. It's an act of worship and faithfulness, as well as a way to build healthy community. You know, not murdering each other, not stealing from each other, not coveting each other's things, not having adultery. All those things are good things for a healthy relationship, a healthy community. Now, near the end of the story uh, that I'm sharing here today is a couple of interesting pieces, which we might, as we're reading Exodus, probably don't seem particularly interesting as we read it. And that's that we have a large portion describing how this tabernacle is built. 
um, chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus is Moses receiving instructions about how this is to be built. And then chapters 33 to 40 is, again, pretty much repeating those instructions, but them actually building it in those things. And right in between is this golden calf episode. And so we see an interesting comparison uh, between this golden calf and this tabernacle. We do see that um, the people give gold and silver to both. They first are using their gold and silver to help donate to, and give so generously that they have to be told to stop for the tabernacle. But then they also give gold to Aaron to make this golden calf as well. And then we see this proper display of worship in the tabernacle as it's described to us, and especially to us painstaking detail to read. Um, but each element represents proper relationship with Yahweh. And the tabernacle itself is a sign that Yahweh dwells amongst his people and is guiding them. And then this great barrier comes up with this golden calf as they start trying to make something to show uh, to be Yahweh's presence with them as Moses is receiving instructions of how to build a house for Yahweh to live in, to be present with them. But they do it in an improper way. And so this improper worship or this idolatry breaks in on this tabernacle narrative, this narrative that's saying how Yahweh is going to dwell with the people. It breaks into the middle of that narrative and threatens the whole thing to collapse. The nation of Israel has just been formed and it's already facing annihilation because of it breaking the covenant it just recently signed. And Moses intercedes and the people are saved, but still they're punished. There's still consequences to their actions. And so in the end, the tabernacle is built and Yahweh fills the tabernacle and dwells with his people. So the structure of this narrative of tabernacle, golden calf, tabernacle, shows the difference between proper holy worship of Yahweh in accordance with his holiness and improper idolatrous worship that comes from the decision of people to worship physical things that they have made. Something that Yahweh is very adamant against because it's what all the peoples in Canaan are doing. And it's idolatry. They worship other gods that are all statues and, and images of things. Um, and by worshiping the physical thing, it's just going to make it really easy for them to start following those other gods as well. The other interesting thing we see in the Golden Calf episode is this interaction of Moses interceding on behalf of Israel with God. Yahweh declares he's going to wipe out Israel and restart with Moses, but Moses confronts God. And I'll read what Moses says from the New International Version here. Yahweh, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. These are bold and confrontational words from Moses to God. And the amazing thing is that Yahweh does relent, and he does not bring disaster upon Israel because of Moses' intercession. 
And it's because of Moses' close and intimate relationship with Yahweh that he's able to speak to him in this manner and have Yahweh relent. Yahweh tells Moses to leave him be so he can wipe out Israel. But why does Moses not need to be there for Yahweh to do it? Moses' presence does not prevent Yahweh from being able to carry out the destruction of Israel. But what Rahweh is doing, he's doing this hold me back moment. You know, when, it, when a guy, and it's 99% of the time, it's a, it's a man, who is trying to give the impression that he wants to fight someone, but he doesn't really want to fight the someone, so he's telling his friend, hold me back, hold me back, bro. You know, just like that. <laughs> this is kind of what Yahweh's doing. He's saying, hold me back, Moses. <laughs> Yahweh is inviting Moses to hold him back from his wrath. And because Moses knows God so deeply, he recognizes that this is what God is doing. God is inviting Moses to come in and intercede. And so um, Moses comes and intercedes on behalf of the people. And the book of Numbers calls Moses the most humble man on the face of the earth, which is an interesting thing when the book of Numbers is attributed to Moses having written. So it's like Moses is writing that about himself, which really doesn't make you humble. But anyways, it says he's the most humble man on the face of the earth. And it's because moments such as this that he's considered as that. God says, I'm going to destroy Israel, and I'm going to make um, a new nation out of you. It's like a big promotion to Moses. He's offering Moses to be the next, the new Abraham, basically. And yet he turns down this massive promotion for the sake of his people. His prayers are for Israel and not for his own well-being. And this is the relationship that we seek with Yahweh, to know him and not just know about him. Knowing uh, about him is cramming our head with information and theology. Not necessarily a bad thing, but that's not the main point um, of being in relationship with God. Knowing him uh, and not just knowing about him. Knowing him is being in deep relationship with him. That we know what to pray for, when to pray for it, and be powerful intercessors for creation. The big difference is like knowing about and knowing knowing someone is that if I know about Dan, I know all the facts about Dan's life. But just because I know all these facts about Dan doesn't mean I have relationship with him. But knowing Dan is that friendship, that relationship that you have with a person. And so that's the big difference. You can know about someone and not have any relationship with them, but you can't know someone without having that relationship with them. And this is what we desire for Yahweh. More important is knowing Yahweh than knowing about Yahweh. Being drawn deep into the love and presence of God allows our lives to glow as Moses' face radiates with the glory of God when he comes down the mountain after he spends this deep, intimate time with him up there. And this is the kind of relationship God is desiring with us. He wants us to know him and not just know about him to spend that time with him and listen to him and start trying to notice those promptings that he's given us. And this morning in Sunday school, we did the prayer of examine, which is a lot of trying to know Yahweh. We look back on our, li- uh, on our day, the day before, and try to see um, 
where God was prompting us throughout the day and where maybe we missed those promptings until we've reflected back and helping train ourselves to be able to notice those promptings more in our day. And that's recognizing God's presence with us and being uh, in relationship with him through that. God desires for us to know him. I'll close us here in prayer and then we'll go into a time of reflection and response in a, a YouTube video as well here. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God of relationship. We've seen it throughout the story so far. Your deep desire to be in relationship with humanity. Back uh, in creation, you created them to be in relationship with you, relationship with each other. In the fall, that was broken, but that you continue to seek out that relationship with us through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph. And now you start showing us the depth of that relationship you want with us through Moses and through your law as well. Your law is showing us how to be healthy relationship with one another and healthy relationship with you. And so we pray that we would be more aware of your presence in our lives, more aware of the ways in which you're trying to reach out to us, to have conversation with us, to be in relationship with us, to reveal yourself to us so that we can know you. So I pray that we would all be more aware of that this week and we would grow in relationship with you this week. That's our prayer for us today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.